0: Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Grant Martzolf, Ryan McDermott, and me, Elise Lonich-Ryan. I'm an instructor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and a faculty fellow with the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Sam and I recorded this conversation in early July 2020, when COVID cases were low and government restrictions on gatherings had eased. We talked in person, socially distanced, with outdoor airflow, and you may hear some of these conditions in the audio. I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Samuel Hazel. How should I begin to describe his impressive and long-lasting career? Perhaps by telling you that his collection of poems, Once for the Last Bandit, was a finalist for the National Book Award, or that he was Pennsylvania's first poet laureate, serving in that capacity from 1993 until 2003. Or perhaps I should mention the International Poetry Forum, which he founded in 1966, and directed until 2009, and which brought to Pittsburgh major poets of the 20th century and international leaders such as Princess Grace of Monaco. Or maybe I should detail his distinguished teaching career in Duquesne University's English department, as he is now the Macalnalty Distinguished Professor of English Emeritus. Or perhaps I should simply say that Samuel Hazo is a lifelong Pittsburgher whose deepest concerns are family, Christianity, war, suffering, and the mystery of death. Sam, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Elise.
0: We're recording in July, and... I hope it's not gauche or poor form of me to say an early happy birthday to you. Uh, (laughs) But I'm calling attention to your birthday because, as I said in the introduction, you are a lifelong Pittsburgher. And the Beatrice Institute is based here in Pittsburgh and takes much of its identity from the city, its institutions, and its history. And you've written so much about Pittsburgh. So I want to start by simply asking you, what are some of your earliest memories of Pittsburgh?
1: Well, I grew up In Squirrel Hill, we lived on Murray Hill Avenue originally, and then uh, on Wilkins Avenue, and uh, finally moved into what was then East Liberty on Shady Avenue. And um, basically, my memories of Pittsburgh are of the time when it was a smoky city. The mills were thriving. There were mornings I would walk from Shady Avenue to Central High School, Central Catholic, and if I held my hand in front of my face like this, a yard away, I couldn't see my fingers.
0: Oh. <laughs>
1: That's how bad the smog was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, of course, the uh, aristocracy, the financial aristocracy of the Melons, and then the political aristocracy with David Lawrence collaborated <laughs> and decided if they were going to work here, they might as well not die of cancer <laughs> here. <laughs> so they passed a number of different laws, all of which outlawed bituminous coal. <laughs> they screened the chimneys smokestacks of the mills, and Pittsburgh then became what it is now. I mean, it gradually lost its uh, focus as a steel center. They, there are still some specially steel companies here, but the real employer here is medical. It's UPMC, and that's, that's what you see.
0: When you described holding your hand out, It sounds Dickensian in -hmm. the fog, the beginning of Bleak House, as the fog is just curling around you. Well, it
1: was that bad. Mm -hmm. And every morning was like that. I mean, it's unusual Mm -hmm. if you got up and it was a clear day because the the smoke, especially on humid weather, it would just settle Mm -hmm. over the city. And there was no alternative. You just breathed it in. Mm -hmm. I used to notice that when I went to school at Central, we all had to wear white shirts and neckties. Well, by the time I got... From my home on Shady Avenue to Central, i have run my hand like this on the collar, and it was all dirty.
0: So I wonder then, too, how your home and family life influenced you growing up. So many writers, the home, the family is the place they are always looking back to.
1: Well, it, of course it did, actually my mother died when she was quite young she was about 35 and my aunt who was actually my great aunt but she was my mother's aunt even though they were just a couple years apart and when she was dying she asked my aunt to raise us because she knew that my dad who traveled couldn't do it and uh, my aunt did that i'll tell you more about her but she was an amazing amazing woman everybody said you're making a big mistake they'll forget all about you let their dad do it Uh, her brothers weren't for it people called her foolish Mm -hmm. she didn't bet on i actually there was a court case and my dad he had found a uh, a woman that he thought he wanted to marry turned out to be a disaster it wasn't his fault he was just lonely but uh went to court and i'll never forget the judge called me in my brother and me and uh, he said, where would you like to stay, with your dad or with your aunt and your grandfather? And I said, well, we want to stay with my aunt and my grandfather. He said, uh, what else do you do besides go to school? I said, well, I'm a Cub Scout. He said, well, what else do you do? And I said, well, you're always a Cub Scout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He smiled He said, that's very good. Uh-huh. <laughs> so later on, many years, either either before, after that, uh, my aunt was determined to get her citizenship papers and we were studying American history, preparing for this. She went down and took her test. Same judge, by the way. We went mid her at the streetcar and said, How'd you do, Cat? Don't ask me. I said, so What I forgot everything. I thought it was Abraham Washington. I got everything mixed up. But I said to him finally, he said, I'm raising my two boys to be good American citizens, and if that's not enough for you, that's the best I can do. And the judge said, "Miss Abner, that's about the most patriotic thing I've heard all day.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) No more questions. So she was awarded her citizenship? Yep. Good. Good. (laughs) Was faith a part of your life growing up, with your aunt or with your dad and your brother?
1: Well, they yeah, they were, I guess you could say, Catholic. But my dad, I think he became a Catholic when he got married. But, uh... He didn't like the Maronite priest here at all. Mm -hmm. And when my mother died, that priest wanted to have the funeral himself, and my dad just told him to just get out of here. And said my wife was married in St. Paul's Cathedral, and she wants to be buried from St. Paul's Cathedral. And that's the way it was.
0: Good. You went to Notre Dame, right, for undergraduate. What was it like at that university when you were there?
1: If I give you a figure, you'll faint.
0: Okay. (laughs)
1: Tuition, room, board, and laundry. Each semester was $373.
0: I fainted. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay.
1: That's something?
0: That is something. Yes.
1: And uh, <laughs> I actually, I had a good record at Central, and in fact, I was a valedictorian at Central, And but I didn't have a scholarship. So I was at a graduation party, and there was a girl there. I have never seen her since. Her name was Myra Jane Barry. I remember that name mm-hmm. forever. She said... Dr. Leo O'Donnell gives a scholarship every year in Notre Dame to a Pittsburgh student. And if you want, I know the secretary, I can make an appointment for you. I said, fine. Went down, I met Dr. O'Donnell in early June. June 27th, I was on the campus of Notre Dame. I was on the trimester program at that time. And... I'll be indebted to Dr. O'Donnell all my life. But that's that's the way it happened. And uh, But Notre Dame at that time was uh, basically a boys' and men's school. This sounds like I'm bragging and I'm not. I didn't have any money, but I used to go to dances at St. Mary's once in a while. and There was a girl there that I thought was very nice and very attractive. And I asked her for a dance. And she agreed, we danced. And I think I asked her out for a movie. A movie at that time called The Killers. <laughs> Was based on a Hemingway, <laughs> and uh, but after that I never took her out, never wrote nothing. And uh, about five years ago, I got a either a call or a letter from this girl whose name was at that time Cheryl Paul. And she said, uh, "Are you the Hazel who the Sam Hazel who danced with me at St. Mary's in 1946?" I said, "Yes, I am." She said, "Well, my name is Cheryl Paul Ricketts," and. Uh, I saw your book, and I thought I'd just call you. I said, well, that was very sweet of you to call. She said, "Uh, I have five children. I lost my husband about four years ago. I thought for a girl to do that after all that time, that took a lot of guts. So I, I wrote her, and I sent her some books, and we exchanged letters and so forth for about two years. And then I got a very short letter saying, I can't write to you anymore. I have, and she named the disease, and I'm going into hospice care tomorrow. And that was the end of that story. But I'll remember that forever.
0: I mean, it was a gift. It mm-hmm. was a gift, pure. Yeah. When you were at Notre Dame, you started by studying law, correct? Is that you were in law program? Uh, I
1: had the usual bourgeois ideals, <laughs> and uh, being a teacher or a writer or that never even occurred to me. So uh, at the end of my third year there, they had a program. Where the law, your law program could begin if you had a good record at the end of your junior year. And I had a meeting with a dean then, who a man named Clarence Mannion, was the dean at Notre Dame, ultra right, ultra right Catholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an interview with him, and uh, he said, he talked to me for a while. He said, I don't know if you're interested in law. Well, I am very interested in law. I said, Well, it doesn't sound like that to me. And I wasn't interested. Mm -hmm. So I've been grateful to him ever since for refusing to let me in law school.
0: Sometimes we really need other people to show us who we are. (laughs) It's true. So what was it about English then, studying language and literature and poetry, that became you?
1: Well, actually it depended on two people. There was a program at Notre Dame called the Philosophy of Literature. That was your major sequence. It's a four-semester course. The first uh, year was taught by a man named Rufus Rausch. And the second year was taught by Frank O'Malley, who was a want to say, he's a tradition at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And uh, those two courses attracted me very much, and I never regretted taking them. But that's thats what did it.
0: What did you read in those courses? Do you recall? Oh,
1: God, We started with Pierce Plowman, parts of the, the Divine Comedy, Chaucer. Uh, senior year, we read Christopher Dawson, Charles Piggy, Leon Blois, Francois moriac I mean... The, all very enlightened European Catholicism. And uh, I'm glad I was introduced to Catholicism in that way because other than that, it would be just parish Catholicism mm-hmm. and catechetical Catholicism, and that just bores, bores me.
0: Can you say more about that? What about the cosmopolitan intellectual Catholicism boosted your sense of the faith?
1: Well, it showed me that uh, being a Christian was simply being realistic about the way the world works. And I always thought, and I still think, that I don't like any life that's based on obedience. I don't care if it's ecclesiastical, military, academic, commercial. It doesn't matter. I always think everyone should have a good to hell with it in his back pocket, and nobody should be able to counteract that. My concept of Catholicism is pretty much confined to what the imagination can conceive of as real.
0: Which is... Quite a lot. It <laughs> is. Quite everything. Everything. Right. Mm-hmm. You spoke about obedience, and I wanted to ask you, I know that you went into the Army. You were in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And I don't want to impinge on It any... applies
1: to that, too, particularly. Yeah,
0: right, right. So I, I wanted to know, again, without impinging on any memories that you don't want to relive or share, how do you think that that experienced changed you, changed your thinking.
1: Well, I'll tell you one incident. I went in as a private, and then they had a program open to people who were enlisted and who had gone to college. So, I think originally about 500 out of the entire Marine Corps, and we came to Quantico and they screened us for eight weeks, commissioned 250 of us. The rest returned to your former duties. We went through about four or five months of pretty tough training, and Finally, I had a meeting with a major, and uh, my record was very good. I mean, all that. Finally, I just told him, I said, sir, excuse me, but I don't think I could kill somebody. And we're taught all the means to do so. I know how to kill somebody with a newspaper. And he didn't say anything. He didn't uh, say, what's the problem? he just said, well, put that in the record. Actually, I didn't see any action as a Marine officer. I just went to uh, Portsmouth, Virginia. There was a forwarding depot there. I worked as a legal officer. And then I got out, and fortunately, I was in the reserve for five years. And fortunately, we weren't in another war. or would have been called, back. I'd gotten married. it would have been, oh, hell. Mm-hmm. This applies to the Marine Corps, which is as a military outfit, it's as good as they come.
0: When you came back to Pittsburgh, you said you got married. At that point, what were your hopes? What did you hope to do, hope to become?
1: I don't know if I hoped to become anything. I, uh, I knew what I didn't want to do. hmm so I taught at a prep school, Shadyside Academy, for a couple of years, and then had a chance to uh, teach at Duquesne, and at that time, I enjoyed it very right? and I enjoyed it the whole time I was there. Mm-hmm. I don't have any regrets about that at all. I was, at one point, uh, there was a vice president at uh, Pitt who became the chancellor at the University of Indiana, and he called me, he said, Hazel, so how would you like to be my vice president when I go to Indiana?
0: So that's how you were in Bloomington. Okay. So you didn't take that position, though? No. No. Okay. Well, our paths may have crossed in some other strange way had you done that. Well, actually,
1: it showed me what Pittsburgh meant to me. Mm. That was all a matter of luck because when I got out of the service, I went down to the VA and a fellow said, uh, you're entitled to the GI Bill. And I said, well, you can put down MA. I'll go. I don't know what I'll do after that. I want to put down PhD because you have enough to get a doctorate. And I said, well, what if I don't? He said, well, if you don't, that's your business. But if you want to and you don't put it down, you're not going to be permitted to do it. You're going to get a lot of red tape. So because of him, I I was able to get a graduate education.
0: The kindness of strangers sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing that over and over again in some of the stories we're talking about. That's true. How did poetry enter your life? How did you come to decide your life? Well,
1: I always... uh, Of all the forms of literature, poetry always one was always the one that spoke to me most intimately. And I tried my hand at writing it when I was in the Marine Corps. I had some things published, and when I finished a poem that I was moved to write, as opposed to a short story or something, I always the I was the least dissatisfied with that form of writing, and I still feel the
0: same way. you said that when you are moved to write a poem, is that your way of approaching the writing by being affectively or inspirationally moved. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that, what that means well, to you? Well, I don't,
1: I don't think that the writing a poem is something you do from 10 to 5 every day. I think that's anybody who does that is wasting his time. It's like writing a poem on request mm-hmm. or on demand. <laughs> when I went to see Governor Casey and he offered me this, uh, I said, I'll take it on two conditions, no salary and... I won't be asked to write some poem if some judge in Lackawanna County happens to be elected <laughs> for purposes to try to make poetry an expected part of public life. And he agreed. So I did it for 10 years, and then the governor, i have forgotten his name. One day, 2003, I got a letter from him, not from him, from his office, secretary. There was some, the poet lord of New Jersey who was a, have forgotten his name. He'd written some poems that were, considered anti-Semitic. And it was a big scandal. So this governor apparently thought that he was going to have trouble with me. So I wrote him a letter saying, you know, we serve at the pleasure of the governor. So I'm not going to raise a fuss about this, but Pennsylvania should be represented with a poet for the same reason that I was. And it should be a state poet. His answer was in a letter, perfect political answer. Every Pennsylvania poet is a state poet. Can you improve on that? Not politically, not
0: politically, no. Mm. No, (laughs) that was studied. I do really appreciate what you say though about that poetry should be a part of public life. Absolutely. Public discourse. And I don't know that many people practice that or that we are living in an era when people are turning to poetry to help us get through and to think through, be inspired by our lives as citizens.
1: No, it's absent. That's why so much poems by American poets are not known outside of sometimes their state or their generation or not known in Europe at all and are not known even in this country, even in their own state.
0: What kind of poems would you like to hear more of and read more of in the public sector?
1: Well, poems that speak to everybody, to everybody. I was just reading a poem about Bill Merwin It's only a six-line poem, but you've had a thought that came to you, and he said, God, that's a brilliant thought. You were just about to go to sleep. He said, I'm just going to think about this in the morning. And he get up in the morning, and it's gone. And he writes, he said, coming late as always, I try to remember what I almost heard. The light avoids my eye. How many times have I heard the locks close and the lark take the keys and hang them in heaven?
0: Pretty perfect, Paul.
1: (laughs) It is. it is. I can't improve mm-hmm. on it.
0: Mm-hmm. The compression of the images and the sounds, even as you were reciting it.
1: Oh, you can take ordinary can statements sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. I was looking through some poems. There's a poem called One Liners or Less. What made Elizabeth say, I'm not attractive to men? Or Patty say, my brother is so good, he's boring. <laughs> or Dolores in her 80s say, I want more birthdays but I don't want to celebrate them. Or Barbara, once divorced, admit the world is run by couples. Such frankness in women makes the truth less fearsome if admitted when faced. And there's a lighter side as well. Watching his wife peruse the mail in her underwear, he said, suppose a strange man walked in here. Without pausing to look up, she said, you are a strange man. After the party crasher insulted his French hostess by saying your meal was fit for a take she smiled a parisian smile and said so glad you felt at home but marilyn monroe outdid them all asked if she had something on when joe dimaggio proposed she said with grave innocence the radio the shorter the phrase the keener the wit the keener the wit the surer the touch the surer the touch the purer the art that knows when one word more would be a word too much
0: thank you That was recited, for those of you listening. (laughs) And it really, it begs me to ask you, what role do you see memory playing? You have so much that you just have memorized that is part of who you are. Does memory play a role in your work? Why do you think memorizing is important?
1: I'll answer in one phrase. Memory is all we have. The future doesn't exist. The present is becoming past. And the past exists only in memory. So if you don't have that, you have nothing. Why do people keep pictures? Why do people keep letters?
0: And everything is alive there. Yeah. It reminds me of what you mentioned earlier as you encountered that intellectual cosmopolitan Catholicism, that it gave you a sense of imagination where all things could be contained. Absolutely. And memory seems to dovetail with that. that Even even people
1: who who are not considered, quote, Catholic or Christian I mean, Linda Paston, who's a contemporary poet, is Jewish, and her poems, especially her poems about her children and so forth, I mean, if that's not humane, human, natural outlook, I don't, I'm not interested in any alternative.
0: This desire to have a humane outlook, to have public poetry be a part of civilians' lives, every person's life, is that what inspired you to begin the International Poetry Forum? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read for listeners who may not know about the International Poetry Forum. I'm just going to give a very abbreviated list of some of the poets that you hosted here in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. W.H. Auden, Anne Sexton, Gwendolyn Brooks, Seamus Haney, Billy Collins, Octavio Paz, Naomi Shihab Nye, W.S. Merwin, Joyce Carol Oates, Derek Walcart. You also hosted Senator Eugene McCarthy and Princess Grace of Monaco. And as I said, I've not really even scratched the surface of the luminaries that you brought to Pittsburgh, but because I am a great lover of poetry, but perhaps a greater lover of Grace Kelly, I have to ask you what it was like to host a princess in Pittsburgh. Uh, How did you bring her here? What was that like? Well,
1: actually, a woman... uh her name was Denise Ellis. Her husband was a lawyer, and I didn't know her at all. But she saw a notice in the paper that uh, Princess Grace had given a reading in Edinburgh, Scotland, at the castle or something there. And she said, uh, she more or less just said, said that. So I thought about it, and I said, you know, and I wrote her a letter. But to make sure she got it, I sent through sent it through the Monaco consul in New York, and he assured me that she would get it. So uh, she wrote back and said, uh, in fact, we were just going through her letters yesterday. The first ones are all typed and assigned Grace to Monaco. <laughs> and then after we got to know one another, I have about eight or nine handwritten letters in
0: there. Wow.
1: Anyway, so Marianne, my wife at that time, was doing some travel consultancy for people. And she arranged for us to have a trip to Monaco. So we went to Monaco and she well, Grace Kelly wasn't there. So I met uh, her secretary, a man named Paul Choisy. And, uh, I left him a couple books of mine. And she had already received the letter that I had written. But he said, we can't give you a date. And when we came back, uh, she wrote me and said, I could come. I'm having a meeting at Paramount. She's a member of the board of directors of Paramount. And, uh, I could come and she gave me a date. It was in, it was in February. I'm not sure. Fine. People have said to me, you must have showed out a lot of money. She didn't accept anything really the only ones i paid were the ones that came with her the uh there, were, there was an actor named richard Pasco who originally came with her anyway we we presented the program here we got to know her and she was uh, she's very much like you very open easy to know convivial uh, a good woman uh, That's so charlie kind. <laughs> charlie uh, jordan who was her bodyguard i had to hire a cop charlie's beat was the edison hotel downtown which is the headquarters of every pimp in the city uh, next day he's the bodyguard for Grace Kelly she'd never met anybody I mean you know the people the men around her were you know weep which says oh we met that uh, all that Charlie would say princess your slip shone on the right on the uh. right princess the other right but uh, that's why he talked to her and and she liked it as a matter of fact uh, Three years later, when he died, he died on the job. She wrote a letter to his wife and had everybody who came with her write a letter to his wife. And in Charlie's, when I went to see the viewing, they had a picture of Grace Kelly and him in the casket. That's what it meant to him.
0: That's extraordinary. It's amazing. amazing.
1: Yeah. And uh, what else can I tell you about her? Actually, when, when she was killed, uh, Marianne and I were in Washington, and uh, I'd heard she was in an accident, but the only report that came out then was that she'd broken her leg. And we were there in Washington to set up a reading for her, a performance for her in Washington. And then we drove home and I didn't have the radio on. So when I get to Pittsburgh, I could hear her, there are the cars in front of the house and uh, reporters and all that. And he said, uh, she, he said when I got on there, he said, she died. I said, well. And uh, the only one who didn't ask me a question that night was a young girl just starting it uh, as a TV reporter, Sally Wiggin. Yeah, she knew she saw how I felt, and and she never asked me a question, but she was following the, the interview very closely.
0: For those who are listening, who might not be from Pittsburgh, <clears throat> Sally Wiggin was a longtime news anchor here, and is still a major community figure in Pittsburgh. She is, yes, mm-hmm. she's.
1: She's as sweet and nice now as she always was, and a very competent journalist.
0: Very. What were some of the other hallmark experiences from International Poetry Forum for you? Who inspired you most that you brought to the city to read?
1: Well, the one, the the poet with whom I shared my ideas about what poetry should be in society was Archibald McLeish, because that's exactly what he believed And he said, if poetry doesn't reach the people, it's just wasted. And his poetry, a lot of his dramatic poetry, has the same purpose. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting readings was the actor, Peter Ustinov. I had to really track him down to get him to come. And finally, he said he would come. And he came and he gave a reading in which he used, you know, he used every dialect known to man (laughs) to recite poems. And finally, at the end, he liked the poems of John Donne. And he read poems of John Donne which were, it was ill-advised, because you can't read poems of John Donne to an indiscriminate audience. They won't get it. There was Yevtushenko. We had we were, In fact, uh, the people in New York said, I need, we need a letter to invite him. Would you mind writing a letter? So I wrote the letter. So my letter got him out of Russia. And he came uh, and he gave his first reading here in, in Pittsburgh. And he came, I'll never forget it. There were people in the there were 2,000 people there that night. And he was introduced by his translator, you, Evgeny Toshenko. I'm so glad to be in Pittsburgh. Then he said it in Russian. Somebody in the audience said, come closer to the microphone. We can't hear you. Oh. He said, no, you come closer to me.
0: Perfect. <laughs> That's fantastic.
1: But he gave it, there's, there's a man who knew how to, you know, off a memory in Moscow, he'd have an audience of 80, 80 90, people.
0: It's astonishing. It's also just astonishing to think of 2,000 people in an auditorium right. to hear a poet. And I'm really astonished just listening to you talk about the letters that you wrote, the way of doing this, establishing the terms on which we do these kinds of things in academia today, are so different. And frankly, they're largely impersonal.
1: That's right. That's, that's one thing I found out about actors. Mm. Uh, we had probably some of the greatest actors in the American and British. Anthony Hopkins, Gregory Peck, Eva Marie Saint. Uh, all of these people are consummate actors. But, but what I found out is that between movies, they have nothing to do except social things or family things. So uh, they're open to something like this, which doesn't take much rehearsal, if any. It, it permits them to, to indulge something that they enjoy. And they can, if they can not recite it, they read it. Gregory Peck came and we did a program of uh, William Butler Yeats, his poems. And I showed him the script. He said, you read the script, I'll be Yeats. And he said the poems of Yeats. But one poem that he read... That night, and as it turned out, he was not satisfied with his reading because it wasn't it wasn't very animated. Well, he came back the next year for the arts and letters program, and they invited me. He asked him to invite asked him to invite me to the so. Marianne and I went. First poem he read, he said. I see my friends, Mr. Hazel in the audience. I'd like to re recite a poem I should have done better when I was here, and he recited that poem from memory of Yeats. I
0: wish I could have heard that <laughs> both times. The poor time and the excellent time. I wonder if you have any suggestions for how we might do more of this right now. How can we motivate ourselves to do more public recitations of poetry?
1: Just do them.
0: Just do them. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, you don't have to have a crowd. You could do them over dinner.
0: I've often thought that public recitations of poetry and drama and just doing plays... On street corners or you know in little public squares would do it's, more to change us I think
1: it's best mm-hmm. to do them in familiar circumstances mm-hmm. uh, I just quoted two poems to you a few minutes ago I felt very much at home doing that right here over a table but uh, there are other circumstances at dinners, sometime uh, formal dinners if you want to toast somebody it'd be a perfect time to say a poem mm-hmm. that would apply I was working on a poem. I'll try it on you. Mm-hmm. It's called The Less Said, The Truer. And there's an epigraph. It's an Arab proverb. Love comes to men through the eye, to women through the ear. When Cyrano declared his passion for Roxanne, he stood in the shadows. Seated on her balcony, she never even saw the man, but loved what she heard. There's more to this than mere romance. For those who think that life is based, that love is based on age, height, religion, status, worth, or race. Those are the things of mergers, not marriage. The man a thoughtful woman allows to enter her body needs more than these to qualify. It's what she hears or sees in his eyes that matters to her. For lack of an alternative, call it the language of the heart. Bill's wife-to-be spoke only Japanese. He felt what she meant and their 30 years together prove it. A half foot taller than Faisal, Noha left Syria to marry him because she liked the look in his eye. When Anne met Pamela's French fiancée, she told her I'd marry him if I had to live in a sewer. Although her mother disapproved, Rebecca insisted, I'm not marrying my mother. Ten happy anniversaries later, she pleaded with guests, please be nice to my mother. What else but love explains why Trish mounted a Harley Davidson with Mark, who steered it after midnight through the rain from Pittsburgh to Washington with just one stop. In order to prevail, love challenges risk. Deny that at your peril.
0: Thank you. Love challenges risk. That's yes. lovely.
1: But imagine I was there that night. Mark Paoletta had come to Pittsburgh to visit, and Trish, who was his, more than his girlfriend, just about his fiance, was studying at, at this Indiana University. And they were supposed to go back because they had to be at work at 9 in the morning, and she wanted to go back. to spend the weekend, you know, with him in Washington. It's 5 minutes to 12. It's raining, and she came out and got on the bike on the motorcycle. I said, Mark, are you sure you want to go? It's raining, and it's night. I imagine, you know, on the turnpike, mm-hmm. going, no hesitation. And I told Marianne, I said, if love doesn't explain that, the only alternative is madness.
0: Madness? <laughs> I thought the same thing, right? Well, the two have always been tightly linked. So yeah.
1: That's a true story, by the way. I didn't yeah. make a thing about that.
0: And those true stories are all around us and are all poems. <laughs> They're all capable of becoming capable, poems. Yes, they can sure. be. They can be poetic. And you're writing poetry now. As we kind of come to the conclusion of our conversation here, what what is inspiring you right now? Earlier, we talked that you are moved to write poetry. You're inspired. You no, know,
1: nothing. Anything.
0: <laughs> anything. <laughs> anything
1: that you know. I've told many people. this one practicing poet said, "Don't you try to try to write something every day?" I said, "I don't write until I can't get out of it." When, I'm, when I have no alternative but to do that. He said, well, I write every morning. But the point I'm trying to make is that the poetry comes where it, it, love comes. You don't control that. You cooperate.
0: I like that cooperation. It puts me in mind the choreographer, George Balanchine. Mm-hmm. Someone once said to him, oh, how do you create these dances? And he said, God creates, I arrange. And... I hear an echo of that in what you just said. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, that's essentially why Plato kicked poets out of the Republic.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They couldn't account for what they were doing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Too much of a risk. That risk that's so close to love, as you said. Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm. love is it. Mm -hmm. Love, thou art the absolute soul lord of life and death, said Shakespeare. And he's correct. Can't think. There's a great story by Faulkner (laughs) called Two Soldiers. These are a family, in dirt poor family in Mississippi, they're farmers. The older brother is 18, he joins the army, and he tells his younger brother, who's about eight or nine, he said, I want you to take care of my plot till I get back. Promise? Boy, said. not say anything. He goes off to Memphis, to the recruiting station. That night, the young boy, not, not, not even 10 years old, he packs up all his important stuff in a handkerchief, and he starts walking to Memphis. He gets, he has a little money. He gets picked up. They take him here take him to the bus stop, pay for his ticket. He gets to Memphis, goes to a cop, says, where do you have the Army at? Oh. <laughs> he says, well, kid, there's a recruiting station down here. He goes into the recruiting station. There's a sergeant. What do you want here, kid? He yells out, my brother Pete. I want to see him. Get out of here. So they, the boy pulls a little penknife out. I want to see my brother Pete. They start chasing him around the office. Finally, a major comes out. What's going on here? He sir, this boy pulled a knife on me. Did you pull a knife on him? He yes, sir. Why'd you do that? You got my brother Pete, and I want to see him. What's his last name? Like, do we have his brother here? Yes, sir. Where is he? He's down to the train station. You're ready to go to Fort Knox. Get him back here. I bring him in. Here comes his older brother. He looks down, and there's his brother. Ten, whom he left in Mississippi the night before. He <laughs> said, I thought I told you to take care of my plot. I couldn't, Pete. It hurt my heart. Can you think of a better line than that? No. (laughs) It hurt my heart. Beautiful.
0: It is beautiful. Thank you. And thank you for this entire conversation. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, too. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our Fellows Program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.